All it takes is a click to listen to RTI online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Up ahead this hour, it's Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight. But first, join us for a brand new episode of Here in Taiwan. Hello and welcome to Here in Taiwan. Today is Thursday, April 23rd. I'm John Van Trieste and joining me here in the studio today is Shirley Lin. Hello. Up next, how COVID-19 is affecting the lottery for the military service. Then how COVID-19 is bringing back disposable tableware and the story of a Taiwanese parrot whose vocabulary makes finding an owner a bit of a long shot. All that coming up next. Please stick around. not much of a surprise to hear that uh, Taiwan's biggest international gateway has fewer passengers before than ever, really, because of the COVID-19 outbreak. Airports across the world have probably seen passenger numbers tumble. But I have a really astonishing statistic. Um, did you know that uh, for the first time probably ever, on April 14th, not a single person arrived from overseas? Really? At the airport's we Terminal actually, 1. Wow, that's breaking the records. I don't think that's ever <laughs> happened. And the total number of passengers that day was 669, which is a record low. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, pretty much Sad. all were like re small, regional, the sort of puddle hopper type of yeah. flights. That's all there was. Uh -huh. Okay. And uh, yeah, and, and we thought that we, things were bad because... Uh, you know, we we fell below 10,000 back in like March. Mm. <laughs> and that seemed to be pretty bad. But it turns yeah. out that uh, we hadn't seen anything yet. Yeah. Uh, by April 4th, fewer than 1,000 people were still flying in because that was when we started imposing, you know, compulsory quarantines on anyone coming in. And by that point, foreign visitors were also barred. But yeah. wow, zero overseas passengers in one of our biggest... Uh, it's it's a very it's not a small airport you know no, in one of these terminals. Yeah. So we're uh, even trying to expand it by you know thinking of con um, constructing a third terminal. Well, they've been talking about that yeah, for a yeah. long time. I don't I know, know when that's going to actually happen, but mm. uh, it seems like for now we have plenty of space to move around in. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, despite long-term plans to sort of phase out military conscription for all male citizens, um, there is still, I believe, a four-month period that is right. in place for people born after a certain date, too. Was it 1994 is the cutoff? Uh, Before that, you have to do the like whole that. year or so, however many yeah. months it is. And a lot of people opt to do alternative military service, but still, um, a lot of people who maybe aren't eligible or for whatever reason want to go into, maybe they're looking for a military career, uh, they take a, you know, which service they're going to go into and all that through a sort of lottery system. They kind of pick lots. Mm -hmm. um, COVID-19 is affecting the, a lot of things about uh, the way that recruits are handled and so forth, though. Yeah, we're talking especially about uh, this uh, Raifang district, which is in New Taipei City. And um, so recently there's like 90-some... Uh, young men who's eligible for this conscription 
um, this season, I guess. And but with the COVID nineteen, they they had to make sure they take on some you know uh, important measures. Yes, I've heard that um, when they were sort of in the initial like barracks in their basic training and everything, it's really easy to get sick. One of my oh. my good friends here uh, said that like there was something that went through the dorms or wherever it was there the bunks. Oh no! When when he was doing it, so yeah. Uh, oh. It's very, it's a very lots of people coming from all over the place in uh, cramped quarters, you know. Yeah, that is right. So anyway, um, with ninety some men, they figured they're going to do it in two tiers, and so uh, and also you know with social distancing, you have to keep a one point five meter between people as they get in line right. to uh, pick the lot. And um, so basically, they then also figured. Mm, they can't just use their bare hands. They've got to use these tongs to pick out their yeah to pick out their the lots lot. To tell them from, what, where they're going to be assigned. Right, where they're going to be assigned, and 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 on top of that, of course, the usuals like you know before they go into the district to pick the lot, they have to get the temperature taken, their hands disinfected, their family members who accompany them are not allowed in, and so they only can stay on the first floor, and then you know with the social distancing and everything, even between the seats uh, of these people as they get in line, all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, it, it, it's really funny because, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's, there are some places that are like on the offshore islands mm-hmm. um, that you can, you can be sent there yes. to do your military service. And those are the, sort of the tough assignments because oh, you're, but you're... People don't like getting those. Um, they, that's always been the case because you spend extended periods away. I mean, you have to fly. Yeah. Or take a boat. And I think I that know. leave is restricted. But longer. I think when you do get leave, it's longer. Well, yeah, and but then if the weather's bad, you can't get on a boat or get on a plane. So right. you probably don't. When it's supposedly, uh, uh, you know, a weekend where you can go home, and it's because just of the weather, weekend. you can't. Yeah, it's not a weekend. For right? people who are on those islands, it's never. I think, like I said, it's longer because they're they're away for longer. I know. And there's a funny thing about um, you know uh, people get nervous when you know when they pick because they don't want to pick. Jin Ma Jiang, which is the Golden Horse Award, because there's the Jin for Jinmen, and then the Ma for um, you know Ma Zhu. And these are two island groups that are far away, quite oh. off. They're they're off the coast of China. You can see China from there, and they're sort of the front line. And they're, they're, they've always been sort of considered the toughest assignments. Yeah, you just don't want to get those. So if you get them, then they say, oh, great, you, you, you know. You've won um, the Golden Horse Award. You won the Golden Award. Horse it's Award, a, which is. A, which I, I think for anyone who hears that, it, it's never funny. No, it's not, it's not exciting at all. Because the Jiang is the Golden Horse Award, which is our annual film award, like the biggest one in Asia. And it's always it's held Oscars, in here in Taiwan. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's the Oscars. Anyway, so that's a funny thing. So, but um, yeah, that's still going. You know, people have to pick the lot and, you know, hopefully they don't get the Golden Horse Award. And well, and yet uh, this time with the tongs and all that kind of stuff. Well, to, and, and wanna... the recent cases aboard this naval vessel that we've <sighs> had show that in those sort of conditions that military conscripts or members of the armed forces are in, I mean, it's cramped, especially if you're on a ship. Yeah. Um, I, it, it only takes one person to get ill. So I don't know. Like, do they have to be... I wonder if they're going to start implementing two-week quarantines before your service starts, just to make sure that everyone is oh, yeah, not definitely. infected. Because you don't want to get sick before you head if, over there. If you if you get sick during the early <laughs> two weeks, first two weeks, then everyone gets sick, right? Yeah, everybody gets sick, and it's everybody too late has to, to stop be quarantined the spread. and everything. I yeah, know. I know. And I wonder if that means that you're exempt from military service after that if you do get sick, or if it just delays it. Delays it. I don't know. Yeah, gets I don't know if they have any rules about these in place yet. I don't know. There's only things you never think about, you know? I know. Mm. (laughs) 
All right. Is this going to be one of those stories where there's a foul-mouthed parrot? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Not foul-mouthed. So then what else would keep someone from adopting this parrot? What what item in its vocabulary specifically? Right. Well, first of all, this is in Wanghua District, which is famous for, I think there's a bird street because it's all the people who love birds, who, you know, who own birds, who keep birds, I don't who know even about sell that. birds I do know there's a, there. there's, a, there's, a slot, there's a row of like pet supply stores there, though, uh, near Longshan Temple. Right, but this is oh well. I think that's different. But that's also in the same district, though. I know there are all these bird lovers who would just you know how there's the word uh, the phrase that says birds of the same feather flock yeah. together. Well, this is people of the same hobby flock together. <laughs> okay, and um, so what happened was that there was uh, this guy. Well, it's somebody who saw this and wrote on you know on on online in social media, uh, sorry, social platform. And then um, he saw this guy stand in front of a bird uh, shop, and there was this gray parrot, mm-hmm. and he was staring at this parrot as if, like, you know, he's thinking, oh, well, this is a beautiful bird. I'd like to buy him and all that. All of a sudden, this gray parrot said, I'm not for sale. I'm not for sale, you know? Oh, there <laughs> In you go. Taiwanese, okay? And um, the guy just jumped. But then you saw the shopkeeper, um, the wife of the shopkeeper, come running right out. I said, no, 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 no. Please don't get us wrong. This bird is for sale. Now, there's a story behind this. Okay. This shop used to own, I mean, they actually own this parrot. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful multicolored parrot. And whenever they had this parrot in front, like by the door, people would just stop by and say, is this bird for sale? And how much is it being, you know, how much for sale? But so they decided they want to teach this beautiful multicolored parrot the phrase, I'm not for sale. Right. Well, it turned out that was, he never picked up that phrase. But, but others the, did. <laughs> right. The gray parrot next door to it picked it up. And it was so funny because now they're saying they really want to sell this gray parrot. <laughs> but he keeps saying, like, I'm not for sale. I'm not for sale. African greys are, are surprisingly popular here. In fact, sometimes you see people with, par- well, macaws too, at the park. Like, they'll have them fly around. Yeah. I actually follow one sort of YouTube celebrity Taiwanese parrot. Do you know the one I'm talking about? No. Tatou Baobei. Yeah? I'm oh, not it, sure. oh, this parrot okay. is just hilarious. It can sing. Oh. It can of do course. little... It dances. <laughs> so, I think we are a, a bird-loving nation over here. Yeah, but, we are. Well, I guess they'll have to teach it some other phrases to I try know. and compensate. <laughs> But you, they never forget what they learned, though. You know, it's that's true. The thing. It's so true. what do you do? <laughs> it's true. This one parrot can cough like the grandfather in the home that lives <laughs> it. it. It does very spot-on imitations. Oh, they're cute. Well, we were going to ban disposable tableware here in Taipei. Uh, there was supposed to expand the ban, in fact, to type hypermarkets here in Taipei starting May 1st. And that doesn't seem like it's going to happen, at least not universally anymore. Um, businesses around Taiwan are getting, you know, the, the permission to start using them for three months because of the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, we don't want people... I mean, I guess if you wash it with hot enough water, it can probably get rid of any viral residue yeah, but you would think yeah. you never you never know and so um just as we were supposed to be getting on the eco-friendly train we're going back and it says in this article that uh between march 15th and, and the 15th of this month 377 businesses that applied to be exempted from the ban received approval from their local governments and this is a- across taiwan um 
And actually, most of them seem to be schools and public institutions, which I don't think count. I don't know why they count them as businesses. Oh, I don't know. They're businesses, <sighs> education. But um, yeah, actually, I, I imagine that it would be like small restaurants and... Uh, the sorts of places where you have a lot of like disposable chopsticks and things always available or convenience stores. They give out a lot of those. Right. Um, but we're not, we're not seeing them as much anymore. Because, no. Yeah, but surprisingly, like uh, most of them are public institutions and schools, uh, the shopping malls, department stores and so forth, that there are only 17 of those. So yeah. they're a very small minority. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says uh, actually that uh, most of the businesses, three hundred more than three hundred of them, are in all in one place, Hualien County. The county government has decided to completely suspend the ban on disposable tableware. So I guess you don't even have to apply if that's the case. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, we'll see a temporary comeback. And local governments have agreed that they're going to actually exempt businesses from the ban, and are allowing everything from cups, bowls, plates, dishes, chopsticks, lunch boxes, spoons, forks, even stirring sticks. Mm-hmm. Which I know there was a big campaign to like even that and straws to do yeah. away with those, um, or get, make like wooden ones, sort of not not plastic anyway. Um, and it says also that uh, hypermarkets are still probably going to have to face the ban though in Taipei, so they could get in trouble. They can be slapped with fines of up to a well, this is a pathetic three hundred U.S. dollars or so. Oh, okay. 200 US dollars or so for, for, for breaking it. But smaller businesses seem to be in the clear. So I wonder, I hope this isn't a long-term trend, you know? Well, yeah, certainly not. I've always wondered, even if uh, these, uh, you know, are disposable things, how do you take care of once they throw away? Because they're still, you know, got germs and everything biohazard, on, yeah. You know? And the other thing is, you know, a lot of times when they have, for instance, in certain superstores here uh, with food courts, when they have plastic utensils that are disposable, they're all shoved into this one container that everyone has to reach their hands in. And you don't know who's touched what. I know. Even if there's a big pile. I always try to pick from like the bottom. <laughs> or, like, <laughs> But that's just it. Like, I think everyone's probably reaching as far in as they can and touching everything else in the process. So I don't yeah. know if this is necessarily more sanitary. I know. Uh, they have it's to be my... individually wrapped, I guess, which means even, even more garbage. Still. Yeah, I know. So it's questionable. But anyway. So, so much for our eco-friendly efforts. <laughs> But at a time like this, I guess this you is the what best you, you thing you can to, do. Yeah. People, yeah. yeah. Now, sites like YouTube have done a lot in recent times to sort of make sure that their content is safe. Um, or like on Facebook, if they have something that they think maybe isn't appropriate for everyone, they'll have like a content warning and you have to click on it to make sure that you agree, right? Mm-hmm. Have you seen that before? I'm not sure. Well, sometimes though, I don't know, it's, it's an imperfect system. And this is one example of where different cultural backgrounds can, can uh, maybe make this a bit of an issue. Uh, I'm talking about a video that was posted from an elementary school on Orchid Island, also known by its Chinese name, Lan Yu. Mm-hmm. And this is home to in, in one of Taiwan's 16 officially recognized indigenous groups, the Dao people. And the kids were in their traditional clothing, and uh, YouTube deleted it, the video, citing obscenity, 
apparently it was flagged for oh. obscenity. Now, um, the, I think the reason is because the traditional garb of people there is like a, a thong sort of. Right. A, not like a loincloth, but it covers up mm. things. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, for people who are used to other forms of clothing, maybe a bit surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of their like co- traditional culture, though, and it's very deep rooted in that uh, every garment is actually custom made for each Dao man by a Dao woman. And um, one of the uh, the teachers who was very upset by this at the I'm school sure. said that, quote, that connection also serves as an emotional bridge between the man and the woman who made the garment for him. Mm. And I'm guessing that means that the mothers probably make them for their children too. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, and it also, it's really hot. <laughs> it's just not practical to be wearing long sleeves or anything like that in a climate mm. like that, especially when they're out fishing for flying yeah. fish or mm. growing crops. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the, the teacher who found this said that uh, it had been flagged by an, a user and, you know, they just tie a piece of cloth around the lower body. Uh, it's, it's not obscene at all. Mm. Uh, carry any implications of a thong, is what he said. Mm. Uh, and he says, my word, in that case, all of my flying fish season videos will be deleted because everyone is dressed in That's the traditional true. manner. And he's frustrated because he feels that YouTube doesn't respect cultural differences. Uh-huh. I mean, what's... and Like they should have done their homework. <laughs> yeah. He says, quote, our culture on Orchid Island is beautiful and unique. These children put a great deal of effort into their dances. What is the problem? And he's contacted YouTube about this and has not received a reply of any kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, it says here that uh, they also got someone from a local university, a professor, uh, who is an expert, I think, in indigenous cultures, to say that YouTube should recognize the difference between breaching social customs and traditional culture, and it should avoid making what he called reckless judgments. And um, uh, there's also a quote here from the local county's Indigenous Peoples Bureau, the director who called on YouTube to respect Taiwan's indigenous culture. Hmm. Well, I mean, we can understand why YouTube, you know, is getting stricter about this because like, right. right now when we post a YouTube, there is a question asking whether it's... Is this meant for kids? Meant, yeah. And there's a lot of... Right. Well, and I can understand that there's a lot of sure. truly inappropriate stuff that gets people try and get past. Yeah, I mean, a lot more, just, you know, not a lot more, what is it? Uh, not appropriate compared to the Dao kids, you know, their dance. But I think that this is a, a bunch of kids at an elementary school dancing. I mean, come on. Mm. Um, um, yeah, and I'm sure that this isn't a problem that's unique to the Dao people. I'm yeah. sure there it isn't. I mean, there's it's a global, it's a website with real global reach. You know, people right. upload all sorts of interesting videos exactly. <laughs> around the world. I mean, who knows how many other videos are? What do we want to say? Unjustly it's, deleted yeah. for these reasons. I don't know. What do you think the solution is, though? Because uh, they have to yeah. do something. And I've heard that some of these websites, especially due to COVID-19 now, are uh-huh. cutting back on their human staff, which right. means that the people who actually, the people who make the judgments are being, you know, sent home or whatever. Right. And I'm sure that maybe an algorithm or something is doing a lot of this decision making now. So oh. well, I don't know. That's tough. All right, well, that does it for today's edition of Here in Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste. And I'm Shirley Lin. Stick around. Coming up next, it's Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight.
Lights, camera, Asia. A look at Asian culture and history through the lens of cinema. Hello and welcome back to Lights, Camera, Asia. I'm Jake Chen. Let's pick up from where we left off last week and take a look at the story of In the Mood for Love, a romantic drama directed by Hong Kong-based filmmaker Wong Kar Wai. Last week, we got to the point in the film's plot where Miss Chen and Mr. Zhou, the two next-door neighbors in the same apartment building in Hong Kong, have both detected hints that their respective partners could be having an affair. In other words, Mr. Zhou's wife and Miss Chen's husband are suspected to have been together in secret. The two neighbors sit down with one another, and while both have the intention of confirming their suspicions, they begin a conversation in a very reserved and indirect manner. After all, the reality of being cheated on by one's own partner isn't something that everyone is ready to face. They meet in this small, obscure restaurant. Both are hesitant to start the conversation. Mr. Joe lights up a cigarette, and his eyes finally meet with Miss Chen. It's a brief, uncomfortable look, and Joe finally starts by saying that he's been having a hard time finding the right gift for his wife, and he wonders if Miss Chen could recommend something. Both try to dodge the topic they have in mind for a while before eventually coming to address it. Mr. Joe spotted that his wife and Miss Chen have the same purse, a rare kind that is hard to find in Hong Kong at the time. And Miss Chen also sees that her husband and Mr. Joe have the same tie. The implication is pretty clear at this point. Both their partners have been getting together behind their back. In a scene following the dinner, we see Mr. Joe and Miss Chen walking side by side in the street. It's evening time, and the lights are dim, and the air is thick. Joe gives Chen a suggestive look, and once she asks him whether his wife would mind him coming home this late, he responds by saying, Which means she's used to it and she just leaves me alone. Joe proceeds to ask her to stay with him for the night. And this is where the film takes a rather unexpected turn. When I watched the sequence for the first time, I thought, "Oh, what a waste! All this beautiful music and cinematography, just to serve the story, and here it is devolving into this cheapened, sexy revenge drama. These two are going to get together to get back at their partners." But no, I was wrong, and I'm glad I was. In the Mood for Love didn't become a highly acclaimed movie by offering a plot that is within the audience's expectations. 
the plot heads to a really unexpected direction. Miss Chen looks at Mr. Zhou and says, That is not how my husband talks. Zhou looks confused, and in turn he asks her, Well, how does your husband talk exactly? They take turn to initiate this kind of conversation in the following scene, where Miss Chen asks Zhou to stay with her through the night. And once again, the conversation couldn't sustain itself for long when Miss Chen breaks character and asks Zhou, saying, I don't know if your wife would talk this way. As it turns out, the two are both deeply hurt and baffled in their situation. And as a way of coping and finding out why their partners decided to cheat on them, they try to reimagine and reenact that moment when their partners first hooked up. It is kind of like their own mini theater of sorts. As life goes on, this becomes a routine between Mr. Joe and Miss Chen. When they meet in a restaurant, she would ask Joe to order for her what his wife would normally order. She says doing so helps her understand what kind of person his wife is. It is a rather unique way to find consolation. The viewers can tell that both of them are very, very hurt by this discovery, and they are also very lost. Later on, when Mr. Joe decides to try his hands on writing martial art novels, which is something he's been itching to do for a while, Miss Chen is the one who visits him from time to time, bringing him food, cheering him up when his confidence wavers. The two continue this relationship for the bulk part of the movie, and in many ways, they are each other's best friend and supporter in a time when they are the most vulnerable, when they need people by their side the most. But these two are also clearly more than just friends to each other. Their partners are absent in their life, both physically and emotionally. And by spending time with each other, spending time to get to know each other and lending that emotional support, they effectively play the role as life partners of each other. And that elevates their relationship to one that is romantic yet platonic. This development of intimacy is natural, as humans who generally spend time with one another tend to get closer. Mr. Joe and Miss Chen realize their feelings for each other, and throughout the film, we can see them being torn between acknowledging such feelings and denying it due to the moral standards that they hold themselves to. In one very moody scene in the rain, Mr. Zhou offers to bring Miss Chen home. She refuses, saying that she doesn't want to be seen with him together in order to avoid gossip. But as the conversation deepens, Zhou could no longer hold back his emotions. He says to Miss Chen that he understands her husband would probably come back one day, and that will be the day he could no longer meet her. And then he has a moment of quiet epiphany. Joe says, 
I've spent all this time trying to figure out how they get started. And now I understand many things happen and nobody knows how or why they happen. Just like when I realized that I began to worry about when your husband might come back one day. Joe effectively confesses his feelings to Miss Chen. He then asks her to help him get a ticket for a ship heading to Singapore. He says he has a friend who needs an extra hand there and that this is the right time to get away from it all. And then, for the one and only time in the movie, Miss Chen asks to stay with him for the night. As the movie progresses and moves closer to the end, Miss Chen's husband did make an unexpected return from his prolonged work trip in Japan. Things look like they're back to normal for a short while, although it is clear that Miss Chen and her husband have grown apart over long periods of separation, his indifferent attitude towards her, and more importantly, of his affairs. Shortly after, Mr. Joe leaves his apartment and briefly moves into a hotel where he used to stay when writing his martial art novels. Before he leaves Hong Kong for good, he asks Miss Chen if he'd come with him to Singapore if he's got an extra ticket. He didn't get an answer during his brief stay. In the final shot that we see him in Hong Kong, Mr. Joe stands by the curtain of the hotel window and his eyes wanders into the distance as if he's trying to let out all the sorrow and the longing that he carries with him. He then turns around, disappears in the shadow, and heads to Singapore. In the following scene, we see Mr. Joe suspiciously look through his things in the house, presumably at this point in Singapore, and he suspects someone has been in his room while he was away. In the following scene, we see Miss Chen in his room, sitting in his chair and smoking his cigarette, thus leaving a trace for him to find out. The timeline of these two events are clearly reversed, and Mr. Joe apparently missed her by just a few moments. And just like that, just like they got together by the hand of fate, they miss each other and never see each other again. A few years later, Miss Chen visits her old apartment building in Hong Kong. Then she bumps into her old landlord. She chats with her, but Miss Chen couldn't hear anything as the sight of seeing where Mr. Joe used to live made her shed a few tears in silence. In a separate scene, at a separate moment, Mr. Joe also revisits the apartment. A man now lives in the room where Joe used to live. He tells Joe that a woman with a child lives next door where Miss Chen used to live. It is implied that Miss Chen has taken up the landlord's offer and moved back in, and it was never clear whether the child was conceived during their brief stay that night. But Joe never gets to find out. He stares at the door for a very long moment, and he walks away quietly. In the film's final scene, we see Mr. Joe traveling to a temple in Cambodia and silently speaks all his longing and memories into a hole on the wall. The film ends, 
and like I said, the two never get a chance to meet again. It is a romantic, painful, bittersweet, yet mesmerizing tale of two strangers getting together by the hand of fate, and of their longing to each other that lasts the rest of their life. In the Mood for Love is one of my favorite movies of all time, and judged from the many lists by film critics, many share the same opinion. In the following episodes, we'll explore the film's many moments and the use of music and cinematography in these moments in order to better understand how the director was able to craft such a beautiful tale. For Lights Camera Asia, I'm Jake Chen. Talk to you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Charles Du is a NASA engineer turned yoga teacher. He originally was from Beijing, but moved to the United States with his parents at the age of nine. He studied aerospace engineering at the University of Michigan. Now, the word "grow" is very important to him. He teaches about growth. He's super passionate about education, and he's been teaching online software product management. He worked at NASA, but two years later, he got fired. And then he started working on another NASA project. And let's find out what that one's about. Right now, if you go to the App Store for the iPhone and you download the NASA app, so that originally was my、oh. product. So the NASA iPhone app is a content app where you can get. Um, different pictures from NASA, the astronomy picture of the day.、Oh, you can、see. track different missions. You can、uh-huh. track、uh, like where the International Space Station is in real time, like、yeah. and calculate when it's going to fly over your head.、Uh, <laughs> it's got、uh, live streaming. So basically, I was the person that came up with the idea, and then I had a developer that I worked with, so a team of two, and we kind of made that idea into an actual product that people can use. Well, that sounds cool. But what happened to that job? Okay, so <laughs> when I Was、uh, close to finishing it.、Uh, there was a civil servant at the time, and the civil servant said, "Okay, how about when we design the app? Let's think about how to、um, bring in different centers and highlight different centers, because NASA has ten centers, and then they all have different funding. So if we highlight different NASA centers, maybe we can get more funding, or maybe we can get more、uh, political leverage through them." And at that time, I was still kind of fresh. I was, I was probably like twenty four, twenty five at the time,、uh-huh. and for me. I didn't really respect the hierarchy. I was like, I'm designing an app. This is my baby, my product, and it's for you know the the millions of people out there. I don't want to think about how it's going to bring funding to different NASA centers. It's not a politically driven product. It's a user centric product. Eventually,、uh, she talked to some people, and then I got you know technically laid off <laughs> because I just didn't really work well with her. Uh-huh. And one of the things working for the government, you realize, you know, there's a lot of people where they can be difficult to work with, but they can't get fired. You know,、right. if they don't get performed well, and they're a civil servant,、mm-hmm. then they pretty much have a job for life. And、right. I was、uh, in one of those situations. So then I got fired from my second NASA job. <laughs> However, later on, you know, when this app became a huge success, it won、uh, the Software of the Year award. 
I ended up getting a medal. I got a bunch of uh, awards because everybody's like, oh yeah, you know, Charles was, you know, one of the two members of the team that made it. And this person that ended up, you know, firing me, she didn't get the credit um, because eventually she got placed on another project as well because she didn't really do well with the existing team either. When I got fired, I got a job uh, at this other organization that ended up being this crazy like Silicon Valley um, university called Singularity University uh, that led me to uh, me being a founder in another really successful startup in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So every single time when something happens to me, like getting fired um, or me realizing this is not the environment to me, I, I used to be like, man, this sucks. You know, this is the worst day of my life. Mm -hmm. But now looking back, I think about those are the moments of transformation those are the moments where the universe is telling me, you know, this environment is not a good fit or you've outgrown this environment. It's time for the next stage. So now whenever something like this happens, I get excited. <laughs> um, just like how I eventually got into yoga, which I know is like a long answer to your original I question. Know. Yeah. Yeah. And just like the first two jobs, the, the transition into yoga started with pain. In and your eyes? Uh, it wasn't with my eyes. Okay, well, yeah, because you did a regular <laughs> yoga in the beginning. Okay. Yeah. So a few years ago, I was uh, cliff jumping off Ooh. of uh, this really high place. I think it was around four stories uh, in Vietnam. Uh -huh. And then when I jumped from four stories into the water, the impact of the water pulled my arm up like all of a sudden. And that impact did a number of things around my shoulder area. Uh, my chest area and my back area. And I remember feeling so much pain. Like oh. there are times where, you know, when I'm breathing, I can yeah. feel the tightness of, oh. of all this, all this muscle areas. And then during that t time of struggle and pain and suffering. You went I, to the doctors, right? Yeah, I went to the doctor. Okay. Uh, and, you know, they put me through physical therapy, mm. uh, which helped. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also started to think back to the times that I get injured while playing soccer. I, I remembered those times where I did yoga uh, while I had injuries, that kind of helped me. Like it, it made me feel better. So then I joined this, it was an amazing yoga gym where they had instructors from all over the world and all they did was yoga. So it was a yoga studio uh, that was really high end. And then they had multiple classes going on every single hour. Um, and that's where I fell in love with yoga. Okay. And then that eventually made me realize this is such a powerful growth framework where not only does it heal the body, it eventually heals the mind mm. and the spirit and it grows it at such a subtle level. So I fell in love with yoga and then I got trained as a teacher. And now I teach a very special type of yoga that is helping me improve my vision. Right. Eye yoga. What was your eyesight before? Yeah. So I got glasses when I was 10 and I was minus three and minus 3.25. Okay. And I have astigmatism on my right eye. So for pretty much over 25 years of my life, yeah. I was nearsighted and I was on glasses and contacts. I discovered this amazing type of yoga called eye yoga. Uh -huh. And basically eye yoga is a type of yoga that focuses um, on the muscles that helps you focus. It's called the ciliary muscles, which controls the shape of the lens. And by intentionally practicing those muscles, we can slowly improve our vision. Uh, late last year, I was minus three and minus 3.25. And after practicing it for three months, I brought my glasses now down to minus 0.5 in each eye. 
That's amazing. Have you taught any、um, students eye yoga, and their eyesight have also improved? Yes, almost every single student、yeah. that goes through a one-hour program experiences a measurable vision improvement. One hour in one hour. It's, wow! It's it's one of those things where, you know, you think about it and you're like, "This is a miracle," but then you try it and you're like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> like my vision has changed because I'm not an eye doctor. But I am a former NASA engineer, so when I look at problems like this, I think about systems, and the human eye,、um, and also vision is basically there's a muscular system that's involved, there's a skeletal system that's involved, there's also an electrical system that's involved, which is your, yeah,、okay. so your central nervous system.、Mm. So basically, the way that our vision works is we we have light, it comes into our eye, and then there's a couple of pieces of the eye、um, that helps focus the light. And then the light gets pieced together into an image, and that eventually leads to、um, what we think of as vision.、Mm. So with all these dis- these systems come into place, yoga is like a way of fine tuning the system, little bit, little bit at a time. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. So you're teaching eye yoga classes now. Yeah, so currently I live in Taipei, and I basically、uh, teach small classes, so only up to four students. So for people that want、oh. to experience eye yoga, I adults teach only, adults, children, Ch- Ch- okay, yeah, anybody with a vision problem. Okay,、um, I also give lectures, so basically teaching people, you know, all right, how how does the eye work? What causes the common problems like nearsightedness, farsightedness, dry eyes, astigmatism. I've got dry eyes. I、yeah. can talk to you later. Yeah,、okay. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then I'm also going to start hosting retreats.、Uh, so only those with eye problems can be your students.、Uh, no, anybody who wants to improve their vision can be my my student. So if someone who's got perfect eyesight, should they come to you? Well, first of all, there's no such thing as perfect eyesight.、Okay. The way we measure our eyes is totally subjective. So you might have heard of like 20/20 vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way that 2020 vision works is, there's a Stellan chart, and when he first came up with this this measuring process, he he decided, okay, this distance reading this size of font is what I deem to be normal, and I'm gonna call this the standard. Okay. So that is what we typically call perfect, but in reality, you know, our vision changes. Throughout different lighting conditions, it changes throughout the day. Oh, really? The Maasai warriors in Africa have been known to have better than perfect vision, and some of the best vision in the world. Wow! So, first of all, there is no perfect vision, and two, you know, because our eyes are changing constantly,、um, you can practice them to see better. And the definition of better could be like you know, looking to the distance, seeing greater detail. Or if you're、um, a little bit older,、uh, looking up close and being able to decipher what the letters are. So there's a range of what our vision can do, and eye yoga can help you、um, improve your vision to the point that you can see clear, either far or near. So that's, I guess, what my definition of improvement or growth is. It doesn't have to be perfect. It can, it gets, because that word it doesn't have a lot of meaning. It's just.、Yeah. Compared to like a subjective know, standard, right? Well, you just started your own eye yoga just only last year, you said. Yeah. So one of my passions is growth. So I think a lot about how can I grow the fastest in the area of interest.、Um, to give you an example, 
So in one year, in my yoga world, I started practicing yoga, got trained as a yoga teacher for Hatha, got trained as a yoga teacher for restorative, and then started to teach as a guest artist in a five-star resort in a private island in Malaysia. Oh, wow. So I did okay. all of this in, in one year. Because I think if you can have the right growth framework and learn the right way, I think time becomes less and less of a variable. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, you know, when you think about, oh, who qualifies as an expert? And then it's it's like this many hours or they've they've done this for this many years. But I think a lot of those are correlations and not causations. And I'm always interested in what is the best way to grow and how can I put myself into that growth framework and just intentionally grow. So when I find something, I just like a heat seeking missile, I go all in on it. So it's been a long time since you've been working remotely and traveling around the world. And I know that you know, sometimes in a year, you kind of uh, switch countries by the season. You actually have been here in town for the last year now. You were saying something about town being that you've discovered as being the best what work environment for or what opportunities or what is it for for you i'm so glad to hear that that it's taiwan i mean why yeah so it happened with a, a dinner experience uh, a few years ago i got invited by a friend to join a, a wedding in taipei and i was only coming here for a weekend and then as part of the short weekend trip i ate at this it's a kaya place like jujiu uh-huh and I remember ordering the the fish. It was like a mackerel. And when the mackerel came out, um, the server was like, you know, normally the mackerel is this big, but the mackerel that we're giving you is a little bit smaller than usual. So is it okay if we charged you less? When that happened, it really touched me. I was like, who would do such a thing to <laughs> go out of their way to save you money when, you know, it could just been the normal price. I wouldn't have known. Not only does this place have amazing food, uh, the people are so warm uh -huh. and it's so touching. And you start to realize, you know, like after living in Taipei and different parts of Taiwan, like the people here are so warm and friendly that this is kind of like the norm. So for those reasons, I decided, okay, I think this is a great environment for me to grow or um, I want to grow right now. Um, and specifically, like even now, like when I'm doing eye yoga, like Taiwan has one of the highest density of people with the vision problems in the world. Yeah, just opportunities for me to share what I what I'm really passionate about right now, which is eye yoga and the people are all really supportive and really friendly. Uh, and I love food, you know, people ask me why I picked Taiwan. And I told them it's because of the food. And then they laugh. And then I, I tell them a little bit more. And then, you know, I, I, I ask them to think, well, every day we eat three times a day. So it kind of makes sense to pick a place where the food is really, really good. <laughs> you know, it affects our health. It affects a lot of things. Sure. Um, and then at Taiwan, um, I can get better food, a higher diversity, diversity. of food mm -hmm. for a fraction of the cost I would pay in the U.S. And who knows, you'll be into some other kind of big projects that nobody has ever touched. And it would be, be amazing then to hear a story, too. So it's been a great time talking to you, Charles. Thank you so much for coming in. And good luck with everything you're doing and contributing to Taiwan and the world. <laughs> so thank you so much, Charles. Thank you so much, Shirley. I had so much fun in this interview. So uh, best of luck to you. And uh, I can't wait to hear more. All right. So. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.